Welcome. This is Writer's Latitude, a podcast about writers, their work, and the things they care about. I'm your host, Joe Samuel Starnes. So today's going to be a sort of a special episode that deals with a couple of books about politics and politics in general. So for the past several years, I've put, helped put together panels at the Collingswood Book Festival. And Collingswood, if you don't know, is a very cool South Jersey town about six miles from Philadelphia. For the past 17 years, it's hosted a fantastic book festival that stretches along Haddon Avenue, its iconic Main Street. And earlier this fall, the festival drew several thousand people out on a crisp autumn day. One of the panels I put together this year I entitled Politics on the Page. Uh, We'll jump into that recording now, and it begins with me introducing Will Bunch, a columnist for the Philadelphia Inquirer and author of two political nonfiction books. And Will serves as moderator. My only part here really is to introduce Will, and I did help to put the panel together. Um, Will will introduce the writers Joe Piazza, author of the politically-minded novel Charlotte Walsh Likes to Win, and Sean L. Chamez, uh, co-author of Survive and Resist, The Definitive Guide to Dystopian Politics, which is a brand new book, came out uh, late this summer, and uh, is definitely, both of these are books that deal with politics in really interesting ways. So I hope you'll enjoy this discussion, uh, Politics on the Page, from the Collingswood Book Festival. Okay, uh, we're going to get started here with the Politics on the Page uh, panel. I'm really happy to have this panel here today, and I want to introduce our moderator, Will Bunch. If you read the Philadelphia Inquirer, I'm sure you recognize him. He's the national opinion columnist for the Inquirer and has been a journalist locally for 24 years, primarily at the Philadelphia Daily News. He's also the author of three full-length books, Tear Down This Myth, about the legacy of Ronald Reagan, The Backlash, about the rise of the Tea Party in the early days of the Obama presidency, and maybe a little more fun one, uh, Jukebox America, a search for the nation's best record machine. Uh, he's received nu- numerous journals. Searching for the book would be an adventure at this point. It's kind of out of print, so, but yeah. Uh, he's also re- you know, received numerous awards for his journalism, including sharing a 1992 Pulitzer Prize for spot news reporting with New York Newsday. Uh, his works appeared elsewhere, the New York Times Magazine, Washington Post, Mother Jones, and elsewhere. So I'm going to turn it over to Will. Thank you. Thank you. Thank, thanks, Anne. <clears throat> can, everybody, can everybody hear me? Yeah, that's good. Uh, well, I'm, I'm, too, I'm, I'm so excited to be on this panel with two amazing authors, Joe Piazza and Shauna Shames. Shames or Shames, or, yeah. both, of their, both of their most recent books are wonderful. Uh, they've actually both written several books. Um, uh, and uh, I guess we picked an interesting time for a politics panel. Uh, not, there's not too much going on in politics right now, right? So uh, we, we, and we can talk about that if you guys want. What, what I want to do, uh, before I introduce them, I'm just going to say, uh, uh, I'm going to introduce each of them. We're going to talk a little bit about their most recent books, um, which you, you can buy later at the Barnes & Noble tent, I think. And... Um, uh, I'm going to ask them a few questions about their books, but also we're going to ha- have a few questions among ourselves just about the, pl- the state of play politically. And then the main thing is I want to open it up to questions from people uh, that you have for either either Joe or Shauna. So um, uh, first, first I want to introduce Shauna to my left. Uh, she lives right here in Collinswood, I'm told. So uh, give it up for a local person. Uh, and uh, so, so Shauna is the, is the co-author of this book, which is called uh, Survive and Resist, 
The Definitive Guide to Dystopian Politics. Uh, she co-wrote it with Amy Atkinson. Uh, it's a book, if you, like, if you like The Handmaid's Tale, then you're going to love this book because uh, uh, it, it's really amazing because she talks about uh, dystopian politics, which uh, may or may not remind you of what's going on in, in this country right now, but uh, she ties it into uh, a lot of great books uh, like The Handmaid's Tale and, and 1984 and other books that you've read. So um, uh, she teaches political science here in South Jersey at, at Rutgers Camden. And uh, uh, she's written and ed edited several other books about millennials and politics and about Republican women, which are two kind of rare species and that she tracked down. And um, I just want to say, I, I, I mean, I, this, this is the book, Survive and Resist. I, I love this book. I, I was a political science major in college myself, and this basically was four years of college, I could have just like read this book. It basically, <laughs> it basically covered, like, it covered so much ground. It, it's really great. So, um, uh, uh, and so to my right, I have Joe Piazza. <laughs> sounds like some of you read some of her books. Um, I believe she's written seven of them. Is that right? Or does that sound right? Or no, is that too many? <laughs> no, I think seven. Seven or eight? Seven or yeah. eight, yeah. I think I don't know. I don't know where the number seven comes from, but it's in the ballpark somewhere yeah. like that. Um, she's, uh, you know, she's she's an award-winning journalist. She's worked at a number of publications that you've all read. In addition to writing her books, um, uh, she she can tell you a little bit more about that if she wants. Um, uh, in fact, it's funny in her her latest book, which we have here, which is just a great read. It's one of those books you're going to stay up all night and just read it in one night. It's called it's called Charlotte Walsh Likes to Win. And uh, it's funny because in the book, the, uh, the Vanity, as a Vanity Fair writer, there's a profile of, of, of Charlotte about, you know, how to, how to, about having it all. And it's kind of like, it's kind of like Joe's resume. So, uh, um, uh, and the, the, book's, the book's set here in Pennsylvania. And uh, I, I just learned recently that Joe's just moved back, is a native of Bucks County who's moved back to Pennsylvania very recently. So, so we're really excited to have her here in Philadelphia and, and here in the Philadelphia area. Um, and Will, I, I have something fun to tell you. In the book, we have her getting this big Vanity Fair profile, mm. and they just we j we're turning the book into a television series. And in the TV series, it's a Philly Inquirer profile. Oh my gosh! Yeah. <laughs> well, so that would be so better. Yeah. That, that would be the most famous Philadelphia Inquirer profile of all time. Yeah. So. I've, I've never seen anybody read the Philadelphia Inquirer at the hairdresser like Vanity Fair. So I don't know, but um. Uh, and anyway, as I said before, the book's a great read. Um, and, and, and basically, the bottom line, what her book does, it, it tries to answer probably the ultimate question right now, which is, can, can politics coexist with the truth? And uh, that's, that's what she tries to get into. So, um, um, so, but, but what I'm going to start, I, I mean, I've told you a little bit about their books, but I thought the best way to start was just for um, each of them to give you kind of an elevator pitch of... Uh, a brief description of what their book is about, um, why, you uh, why you decided to write it now, and, and what you hope to accomplish with it in, in like two or three minutes, if that's not too much pressure. So, uh, Shauna, Sean, why don't you go first? Uh, thank you so much for being here, and I want to thank uh, Sam Starnes and the organizers of this book festival. What a fabulous event. Thank you for making community happen like this. So uh, I teach at the Rutgers in Camden. I teach political science. And uh, thank you. <laughs> I don't know if that's political science or Rutgers, but <laughs> either way. Or either way, right. Yeah. <laughs> the the um, 2016 election was 
uh, a shock, I think, to the world, but more to political scientists than almost anybody, because it doesn't fit with our models of how the world is supposed to work. And I had been asked to go on the news right before the election and kind of make predictions, and I'm never going to do that again because I was totally wrong. And I said, no, this, this won't happen because, and I explained all about our public opinion polls and uh, how good they are. No, and I was completely wrong. Uh, but I do teach, I do have an interest in uh, dystopian fiction, and I teach a course called Dystopian Government. And uh, the editor of my last book on millennials in politics called me right after the election. She said, how soon can you make that into a book? So uh, this is a book based on a course that I do about fiction on bad government. And um, the other person that called me right after the 2016 election uh, to ask me something was an old friend from um, childhood who lives out in Los Angeles. She's an experimental theater person and she's just kind of fabulous but not very political. But she goes, Shauna, it's like so weird because this is LA and how they talk. It's like so weird. It's like it's almost not safe to pay attention to politics. Sorry, it's almost not safe to not pay attention to politics anymore. And I was, Misha, it's never been safe to not pay attention to politics. You just had it really good for a couple years. So what we say in the preface of the book, I got together with Amy Atchison, who is the funniest person I know, because instead of being depressed, we wanted everybody to kind of both have some information and enjoy themselves while learning. So this is a kind of a fun, um, light-hearted romp through uh, genocide and terrible government. It, it is. Actually. It is actually. <laughs> I know that's terrible. She, she's not joking. So, yeah. It's terrible to do. But the, the reason we are able to do that is that, I know this is going to sound weird, but bear with me, dystopias are actually hopeful, right? If somebody takes the time to write it down and to show you how bad a government is through art, then they think it can be changed, right? They're not doing it just out of a sense of total depression and angst. They're doing it because it hasn't happened yet and we can fix it ahead of time. So we say in the preface, dystopian governments happen all the time in fact and fiction, but they have all kinds of recognizable hallmarks that, and major weaknesses that you should know about. Some of these examples are truly terrible, but there are also useful examples of resistance that are important and uplifting. And these are what give us hope for the future of democracy and, well, the human race. Ultimately, this is our message to you. Be not afraid. Maybe that is overstated. Okay, be a little afraid. This is not a normal moment in modern history or politics. Right-wing populism is gaining strength in Europe and the United States. And left-wing populists have done fairly well in Latin America. Both pander to people's worst instincts to stir up fear, hatred, and resentment. But don't let the fear overwhelm you. Worse threats than this have been faced down and overcome. And the human spirit has a way of shining through in the darkest moments. So, behind every dystopia, we say there's a little ray of sunshine. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, it's, it's funny because these, these books are of the moment and the moment isn't that great, but they're both kind of hope, hopeful books, I think, in their own way, I think. But um, rather than hear it from me, why, uh, Joe, why don't you tell them about uh, who Charlotte Walsh is and why you decided to invent this character? Yeah. I um, 
So I started thinking about Charlotte Walsh as a character, as a woman running for Senate in Pennsylvania, a state that's never elected a woman to the Senate or governor, uh, prior to the election in 2016. And leading up to that, I'd been writing a lot of satirical fiction. And so I thought that I was writing a satire about what it takes for a woman to run for office in America in 2016, 2017. And it was going to be hilarious and light and fun because we thought that 2016 was going to go a different way. And then the election happens and you're like, oh shit. The world is kind of a satire now. I don't know if there's a place for this, for this comic book. To, to come out and I ripped up almost everything that I'd written and realized that I wanted to write a book, a very character driven book about what it takes for a woman, a very real, very flawed woman to run for office in our country. Um, she's running for Senate. It could be a stand in for a national election. It could be a stand in for a local election. Um, and I also, but I also didn't want this to be Hillary Clinton fan fiction. Like, oh my God, what would happen if she won? Um, because fem women candidates are just as flawed as male candidates. I mean, some sometimes more so, and they're human beings. And so, I wanted to create a very honest and authentic portrayal of what it does take for a woman to run for office, what it, the toll it takes on her family. Um, and Will mentioned having it all, and I part of the undercurrent of this book and now the TV series is that the idea of having it all is BS. We can't, no, none of us can have it all. Um, and as, her, as she has these highs and lows, things start to fall apart in, in her personal life. It's very difficult to be a mother. It's very difficult to be a wife. It's very difficult to balance all of those things. And I wanted, I wanted to show that kind of emotion that's behind a campaign. And I had also thought about doing this book as nonfiction. I've been a journalist for a long time. I've written three nonfiction books. But the goal was kind of to be sneaky with fiction um, because I knew who was going to pick up a nonfiction book. Like, women who were interested in politics were going to pick up a book about women in politics. And with fiction, when, you get, when, you happen, when you're a lady writer, you happen to get on all these summer beach read lists. <laughs> Thankfully, the cover of the book's not pink. There were many iterations of this book that were pink. Uh, but because of that, people pick up this book that don't care about politics. And that's what I thought was interesting. And that's what you guys had mentioned, too. Um, people, like people in L.A. who are like, it's not safe to, to not pay attention to politics anymore. A lot of people who picked up this book um, were also fans of The Handmaid's Tale, the TV series, not the book, and who were like, oh, wow, that's kind of like life. And you're like, yes, it is. Maybe <laughs> you should read a little bit. Um, so we ha we've, I've had a lot of people pick up the book and say, oh my gosh, now I'm actually interested in what happens in politics. I want to pay more attention to these candidates, male and female. Um, and so it was kind of, Charlotte Walsh became this gateway drug um, for them to you know, find a way into caring about what is happening in our society right now. And so that's been really rewarding and, and fascinating to watch. I think what Joe's saying is everybody needs to buy both of the books together. Together, together. It's, it's actually, they could, we could package them together right. on Amazon. Right, right. I mean, I mean I, it's funny, but I, I read them back to back and they, they really do complement each other. It's like amazing. And once, it's funny because one's fiction, one's nonfiction, but they really both cover a lot of the same ground. And in fact, 
there was another, I, I, like I said, I have a couple specific questions individually for each of you, but a question for both of you I had, which really struck me after reading the two books back to back is um, that there's one word that I'm pretty sure I know, I know it's, I know it's not in Shauna's book because I double checked the index to make sure. And I'm pretty sure it's not in Joe's book either. And the one word that's in neither of your books is, can you guess? Feminism? Trump. <laughs> Trump. Trump. <laughs> Oh yeah, no, yeah, it's not. I yeah, that. yeah, yeah. And, 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 the, and the thing is, I mean, in, in some sense, the, I mean, these books either wouldn't have been written at all, or certainly would not have been written the way they were written. As you said, you were working on yours before, but, but they, they, I mean, obviously, Trump like hangs over them, but yet you both made a conscious choice as writers not to mention Trump or address him head on. Could could both of you maybe talk about that? It was a really calculated decision. Yeah. On on, on my part. And, and what do you, what do you think it accomplishes doing that? Of our publisher. One thing is that I wanted Charlotte Walsh is very clearly a Democrat in this because, as as you guys know, it's complicated to try to write an independent candidate who actually has a viable shot at winning a campaign. Um, in my fantasy world, she was going to be an independent because we wanted this book to appeal to people on both sides of the aisle. Um, Charlotte is a pro-gun candidate in Pennsylvania, um, and there are a lot of things, I think, that make her very appealing but it was really important that we didn't, Trump's enough of a character in our lives, and it was important that we didn't make him more of a character in this book. Um, one, to make it timeless, I mean, so that people can pick up this book in 10 years, um, but also just not to give him more space and not to give him more air, and we've done the same thing. Um, Charlotte actually goes even a little bit more towards the middle to the right in the TV show, um, and we've done, we've been really careful to make sure that there's no allusions to Donald Trump in, in the TV show. And the interesting thing is that that will be coming out after 2020. Yeah, the election so, will be right. airing in January 20, 2021, um, and we'll see who's the president. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I mean, if there's a woman president, that's good right it's uh, yeah i think it's we have yeah. we, we have a lot of discussions yeah, yeah, about this yeah. we're like is it good if there is if is it good if he's still in office we're like it's good either way i mean everyone's gonna want to want to want to talk about this but yeah i just we thought it was very important not to give him more air but there were editors that were in the room that were like why don't you just more directly address him and we chose yeah, and, not to and, and and same for i mean shauna because you, i mean your book obviously is is going to be marketed to people who want to know how to react to trump right mm -hmm. but 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 why didn't you not deal with him because it uh, in was all honesty i i don't find trump very interesting theoretically he's not the problem right the problem is that a snake oil salesman could get to the most powerful office in the land that's not trump's uh doing that's kind of a flaw in both our electoral mechanisms and more importantly in the kind of capacity of our citizens to um, understand kind of uh, the, the role of say checks and balances or other bases of the democracy. Uh, Aristotle um, is kind of explained in brief in the book because if you go back almost 2,500 years now to ancient Greece, right? Aristotle was afraid that democracy uh, was a bad form of government. He actually thought it could be a good form as long as it was more of a republic. But mass democracy, he feared, would lead to tyranny because people would willingly elect a strongman leader, which we see again and again and again. This is why populism is on the rise in all parts of kind of the, the democratized world, 
uh, democracy is very threatened by uh, kind of a tide of populism right now on both the right and the left, but where citizens, particularly if they're afraid or not very educated or whipped up into a frenzy um, or kind of pandered to by elites, uh, are very willing to give power uh, to an executive who should not have that much power, right? So that's the problem that Trump got elected. Um, it surprised me because I thought that we uh, kind of, I guess I thought that there were fewer people in the country who wanted a strongman leader than there were. <laughs> my, like my form of democracy is high citizen engagement and high participation and therefore you don't have such strong leaders. But it, it kind of surprised me, and we talk a little bit in the first chapter of the book about um, never saying the word Trump, but uh, authoritarian citizens, people whose um, preference is to have strongman rule. It turns out, this is a big topic in political science right now, about 45% of Americans are considered authoritarian in our measures, compared to 27% who are non-authoritarian and then the, the rest are in the middle. But that's stunning to me, right? That people kind of want, um, they want daddy to, to fix it whenever there's a crisis is the way I read it as a political scientist. So um, that's what we wanted to talk about, not the actual kind of uh, figurehead or this, you might even think he's more of a puppet, I think. It's not that interesting. Okay. He's kind of a manifestation of, of, of something. I, I've been thinking about that idea so much about that people kind of want someone to tell them what to do. I, this is a little bit off topic, but it's really interesting. There was a story in the Times about two months ago about millennials who were moving in with nuns, aging nuns. Sorry, what? Yes. <laughs> And I, and I, I don't know how I missed that. I wrote, yeah. I'll, I'll send it to you. Now there's a TV show. I'm work, guys, I'm working on it. Uh, I, wrote a, I wrote a book about Catholic nuns a few years ago. Oh, okay. And when I took it to TV producers, they're like, are any of them young and hot? And I'm like, no, they're like, nine, they're like 90 years old. But, that, but now if I introduce millennials into it, I'm like, they're young and hot. But the premise of this um, article is that these millennials are moving in with nuns in real life because they're like, I want someone to show me how to live. I want someone to tell me what to do. And if any of you watched Fleabag season two, which I think is the greatest single season of television created in the past 10 years, she has this line where she kind of breaks down and she says, I just want someone to tell to a priest. She says, I just want someone to tell me what to do. Tell me how to live. Right. And I think that's kind of this interesting offshoot of what people are hungry for yeah. right now. Yeah. Well, let, me, let me ask you, Joe, because I, I thought your book, there, there's kind of a, an aura of dystopia that kind of hangs over the book in the sense that, um, and one thing, I, I think you sold yourself short on the satire part because a lot, <laughs> a lot of it is very satirical and very funny, Trump or, or no Trump. And, um, and, but, but I thought some of the best satire was not the head-on politics stuff, but um, uh, the fact that, you know, Charlotte worked for this company called Humanity, which it, <laughs> It reminded me very much of a, of a certain company that used to have a motto, uh, do no evil, but then, did, <laughs> but then did a lot of evil. Uh, yeah. Humanity's kind of like that. And um, uh, so, so there is this kind of, you know, kind of um, doom of, of uh, you know, Silicon Valley high tech automation hanging over us. And, and I, I know Charlotte's a candidate. She's meeting these voters and trying to give them hope. But yet in her mind, she's saying 
the best you can do is maybe work in an Amazon warehouse or yeah. whatever. I mean, um, I'm, I, I, I certainly don't want to betray the ending of the book, but were, were Charlotte Walsh to become a U.S. senator, would she be able to give hope to people? Or, or can, can the, the, the real-life women who are running for office now um, change some of these dystopian things that are hanging over us? I don't know. And that's, and that's part of, I, with, the, with the book, too, and I'm not going to give away the ending, but yeah. I don't think we give any easy answers. And the publishers were real pissed off about that, by the way. <laughs> They're like, why isn't there a happy ending? I'm like, do you live in the world? <laughs> I, 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 I'm, 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 I'm assuming TV is going to fix that, right? So. Um, TV, I, just got, I'm, I did just get the final episode of the TV show. Um, it's happier. <laughs> <laughs> the yeah. The book. yeah, I'm I'm not I'm not surprised. No. <laughs> but but not totally happy because there has to be a season two. Um <laughs> the yeah, the most satire I got to write in the book, and I wrote this book while I was living in San Francisco, um, was about the tech industry. It was. It was yeah. great. It was yeah. great. Yeah. And I loved writing that part of the book because I saw I saw the entire tech industry, both as a satire and as a dystopia. You know, you have these millionaires, billionaires running around San Francisco saying, I'm here to save the world. We're doing no evil, as you said. And their goal is to make money and steal your data. Um, and that that's what Charlotte Walsh in the book did. So I thought it was really interesting to make her, she comes from Scranton. My family comes from Scranton. Yeah. So I felt like I had license to write Scranton. Um, you, you really shouldn't write you it, it well, unless yeah. you have roots there. Um, but they... They're okay with how the book was portrayed or with how Scranton was portrayed in the book. So she leaves Scranton and she goes to Silicon Valley and becomes the COO of Humanity, um, which is just kind of one of these overarching tech companies that says they're going to solve all of the world's problems. Um, and essentially, they've ended up stealing all of your jobs. And, <laughs> and data. And data. Um, and making billions of dollars. And she feels really guilty about that. <laughs> feels really bad and it's part of the reason that she ends up running for office because she's like she goes home and sees that all of these jobs have disappeared and a lot of it is her fault there's no check there's no people checking you out at target anymore there's no tellers at the bank there's no one pumping your gas for you except here in new jersey (laughs) and she runs on a platform of saying she's going to fix it but as Will said in the introduction, is there truth in politics? Because she has no idea how to fix it. Right. And there, yeah. there may not be a fix. We may have gone too far. And we've seen that with a lot of the political candidates. I think that there's a lot of great ideas out there. But I think there's also a lot of BS. Because a lo- there's grand ideas with no underlying substance from absolutely every single person that's running. And if I c- can get any real messages out in this book, it's that you should do your research while you're pay- when you're paying attention to these candidates and try to get beyond their sound bites and get beyond what cable news is telling you and figure out if there's real substance there. Because with a lot of what Charlotte says, while I love her as a character, um, sometimes there's nothing below the surface. Yeah, yeah I think so. Um, you guys are doing a great job of segueing in from one question to my next question, so I appreciate it. Because I um, I stole this, your this, notes. No, <laughs> I can't. I can't even. I can't even read them. So uh, that, that, that's that's my secret trick as a reporter. But it, it backfires on me a lot when I can't read it. But uh, um, so um, uh, this this is the part of the program where we turn from despair to, to hope a little bit, or actually maybe not. I, I don't know. But um, um, uh, you know, I, I wanted to ask Shauna. Um, you know, I, I think this is a book that probably a lot of the people who are going to want to read this book are people we call resistors, right? The people who 
the, you know, the day that Trump was elected, you know, declared I'm the resistance, the people who, who took part in the Women's March, uh, particularly the first one in 2017. And um, uh, one, one thing that's good, if Shauna didn't mention, there's a lot of tips near the end of the book about, you know, kind of how to organize, how to organize and how to form a movement. And so I wanted to ask Shauna how the actual movement we have here in this country is doing, in your opinion. I mean, uh, you know, I mean, you've kind of laid out a roadmap of what a nonviolent protest movement needs to succeed. Um, how, how far are we in that process in the United States? And I mean, have we been successful or, or can we be successful with um, uh, a resistance type movement? Mm, okay, so that's <laughs> huge. Right. Um. <laughs> <laughs> Let me go back just a little, though. There was one more thing I wanted to say before we get to the utopian part. I wanted to just go back to Charlotte Walsh uh, (laughs) and the the Tech Valley thing just for a minute, though, because as we're thinking about dystopias, the, the brain often goes immediately to totalitarian or authoritarian government. So we often think, and The Handmaid's Tale, you know, that it is at kind of a zenith point right now is so exciting. I've loved it for 20 years. Uh, Okay, but those kinds of authoritarian governments, I think, is not the important form of dystopia to have in your mind and be most afraid of right now. And that might feed into the resistance question, right? I think it's far easier to see dystopia when there's a strongman leader. And we can kind of see it in other countries and we can recognize it in 1984 uh, or um, Animal Farm. We can recognize uh, kind of uh, The Handmaid's Tale. So things where there's uh, a powerful government taking away your civil liberties, fairly easy to recognize as a dystopia, less easy to see as a dystopia. Um, Wally, right? So a company and this is a, this was subtle in the the fabulous little Pixar movie it's a cartoon but you should all see it where the president of the US is also the CEO of a company called By and Large and uh, it's kind of a blending of business and politics in a way that we talk about as a um, capitocracy right so capitocracy is the deep fear, right? There's always fear motivating art that is about a dystopia. And the deep fear is um, capitalism and exploitation of resources rather than suppression of civil liberties. And you could completely have a, I think, horrifying dystopia these days where you don't even see the government much. Um, The Blade Runner might be an example where the Tyrell Corporation owns and controls the police force. Yeah, so that's, I think, actually what we need to be more afraid of. The resistance movement politically is pretty muddled right now because it's not entirely clear, um, I think, that it's needed. Right now, our institutions are doing some kind of job of checking. So each time there's been an attempt at overreach of power, um, usually the courts have been checking the president lately. Uh, but when there was a need, right, the Muslim ban came out immediately. Trump t- kind of takes office and declares this Muslim ban and people descend on the airports. That was exciting. That was a moment. I was proud of citizens at that moment. Uh, the women's marches, I think, are terrific reminders that there's resistance. Uh, but generally, I think the press 
and the other institutions that are supposed to check the president mostly have, except for the tax bill, which is horrifying, um, and the attempt to kill Obamacare, which hasn't totally succeeded. Um, this government has not been able to get done what it's wanted to get done. That's it's kind of interesting. Okay, so this government set up over 200 years ago by men in funny clothes is still working in some ways to check executive power. Um, but the what we really need and what I think we're not seeing is resistance to the capitocracy and the leanings and the kind of creepings of capitocracy into our daily lives. So the, the hearings of, um, uh, for Facebook, I think maybe might be the first step, but I, I feel nervous about it because my students have not the slightest notion of privacy as a concept, right? So that's where I think we're, we're lacking. Oh, Joe, do you have anything to add to that? Because then after that, I'm going to throw it open yeah, to the audience questions. Yeah. Yeah. I, um, you know, I think a lot, and God bless the Women's March, I went to it down in D.C. when I was seven months pregnant with that kid over there. Um, he had a, this bump is not for Trump poster. <laughs> I wore a pink hat. I think a lot of these marches, and there, I mean, there's also so much infighting within the Women's March right now. A lot of these marches are just kind of performative for Instagram at this point, <laughs> which makes me sad. Cynical. Um, I know. <laughs> no, I, I got really dark I, I, I hear you. in wow. my third yeah. trimester. Um, <laughs> but, especially because now this one's a girl. <laughs> Jesus. Um, but, you know, I... I talk to a lot of women who are like, we were resisting, we were doing all this. And I'm like, do you have, a, do you have Alexa in your house? <laughs> and they're like, of course we do. We have the highest quality smart home there is. And I'm like, great. You know, you have a machine that's listening to you all the time. And I agree. I think that people are ignoring um, that a lot of these tech companies are actually creating more of a dystopia than our government is. There's still a, a system of checks and balances on our government. Uh, it, ish, ish. Ish. There's no checks and balances on what these technology companies are doing. So on that happy uh, note. Yeah. On that happy note. So we, I, I, yeah. That was the hope question. Yeah. Well, that okay. was the hope. That yeah. was, that, okay. That's about as hopeful Good. as we're going to get. So yeah. well, we can talk about Trump's impeachment before yeah. we end, but, but before we get to that, uh, um, any questions? I know somebody in the back in the plaid had a question before, or, uh, uh, no, or I guess was raising it. Um, I can uh, add and, and, one thing on hope maybe yeah. while people oh, yeah. are thinking of questions. Yeah. Okay, so we have a whole section on the book on humor, which is where I get a lot of hope these days because huh. uh, it, it's very hard for people to take over your lives if you can laugh at them, right? And if you, especially not just individually because they can take you over then, but if they become a joke, right? So Mubarak in um, Israel, right? A lot of the, sorry, Egypt. Good morning. Mubarak in Egypt with the Arab Spring, uh, a lot of the resistance um, was meme-based and humor-based, and that uh, allowed people to come together around humor uh, and give people courage then to go into the streets, which can be a dangerous thing under an authoritarian government. So we talk about the, the use of humor. Uh, Mel Brooks said this, I think, best when he talks about... Um, he says... He spent most of his career making fun of Hitler as a Jewish person. And he says, it, it's no good getting up on a soapbox and yelling if somebody else is on a soapbox and yelling. But if you can get the whole crowd laughing at him, uh, that's really the way that um, you can take him down. So 
I, I think we're at a kind of wonderful place with the humor resistance in this country. And I have one more hopeful thing, too. I, the book came out um, last summer, so summer 2018, and right before midterm elections. And we had a lot of women who read the book and said, I want to run for office now, which is not what I expected, um, and who are now running in the 2020 cycle. Uh, and that's, that's an incredibly hopeful thing. Um, a lot of women who said I wasn't paying attention, and now I'm going out and volunteering for campaigns. And that's also a hopeful thing. Um, so that's my, that's my one ray of sunshine for this morning, I think. OK. Yes. Uh, oh, you're supposed to, uh, yeah. Oh, he's got, OK. If, if we say that 45% of the people in this country want daddy, um, why is the first part of that question, and what do we do about that? I guess that's me. Yeah, I guess that's you. Yeah, that's you. Why? Yeah. Um, I know this person. This is Teresa, and Teresa is a psychologist. So I, social psychologist. I think Teresa is actually better positioned to answer that than me. This is one of these limits of political science. Why do people want daddy? I, I can't, I, I don't know. I know, I think it's hardwired somewhere, but that's the limits of my understanding of why. But I can tell you what I would want to see about it as a political scientist, right? When you educate people and build citizen capacity and kind of get them um, involved in the joys of self-governance rather than looking to somebody else to do the governing work. And I do think it's joyful to work as citizens together on a project and have wins, right? There's just very little thing that feels like a win or joy in politics right now, which is, I think, why people don't want to do it very much. That's uh, my first book um, in a nutshell. So you don't have to buy that one, but you should buy this one. There's a lot of joy and humor in this because I think whatever the challenges are, and they are huge, but I'm teaching my students right now about the Civil War, about the 1796 election, which I don't know if you knew, but it was vastly more partisan and ugly than today. So I find hope in thinking, okay, this is not actually as bad as we can get. And whenever I've worked like on a local community project or a board, I, I used to be... Um, uh, work for the National Organization for Women, and it was like there was a joy and a hope and a solidarity that came from working together on shared problems. If we could teach that and get the students, you know, get my students who are kind of apathetic about politics to feel like, you know, if that's where they got kind of a sense of excitement or purpose rather than, you know, if we start talking about TV shows, they get really animated and we, you know, um, start talking about the 1796 elections, they kind of shut down. <laughs> but, <laughs> but I find it fascinating. Anyway, I, I think um, we do have greater capacity to be citizens than we're using. So that's when you know that you have that capacity, um, you don't want daddy as much. You don't want somebody else to fix it. Right. There's a power in that. Shauna, how does that 45 uh, percent compare to research in other countries? Are we worse, uh, better, same? We're certainly better than Russia. <laughs> there you go. Right. That's a very high rate of authoritarians. Yeah. Right. And there's sometimes um, yeah. things in different cultures where there's different preferences for authority. And, and part of what the measure is measuring is kind of um, deference to tradition or deference to your parents or older people. Right. That's part of um, the authoritarian personality in our measure. Um, 
but I think it's higher than in some countries that are incredibly good at self-governance, right? I, I don't know. Um, yeah, I'll look at where the good ones are. Okay, here and then, and then here next. Okay, yeah. I have a question for you on the size. The size of? The size of the country. Oh, the size and, of the country. And so you talk about national politics, but you talk about local politics. And right. people at a local level are involved, yeah. are interested, are curious. But then it gets to the national level where we have our most problems, it seems, right now. Um, they don't care. They don't get involved. I don't know that they're looking for somebody to give them answers. They're just cutting it out. Right. And you talk about these other countries... Well, how are they in comparison to our population in this country? Are right. they are are we just so big yes. that we can't we can't manage that national level of involvement? Probably. I mean, I think you're right. Um, and I think the capacity for self-governance that I'd love to see more of happens best at the local level. Um so, I mean, I could imagine, I spend my time thinking about imaginary governments. I could imagine the U.S. being a bunch of separate countries like Europe. Um, yeah, or Scandinavia, right. You could imagine that. Um, did you want to say something? Yeah, I, I yeah. just, well, I, mean, I you asked a question I, I've thought about that maybe not in the exact same terms, but um, uh, I, mean, I followed very closely this year, uh, of course, the protests in Hong Kong, in Puerto Rico, in... Believe me, there's an endless discussion online of why is this happening in other countries and not in the United States. And I think it's so complicated. I think everything is against us in that category. But one is just basic geography, you know. I mean, I mean, some of the people who are most upset with the federal government right now live in Washington State or California or Oregon. They're not going to get to the National Mall for a big protest or a march the way that Hong Kong, everybody's right there, right? So, you know, so, so there's that. Although I, I think it's also the culture. Um, um, uh, if, if you can find it, I, I'm sure it's in print somewhere, but uh, one of the greatest political books ever written in the 1980s was by, by a man named Neil, Neil Postman, and it's called Entertaining mm -hmm. Ourselves to Death. Mm -hmm. And it was pretty much the book that predicted what was going to happen to America. And so, so it, it's not it's just... Hard it's hard to find. It is hard tried, to find, I yeah. Tried, I tried to find it's, it when I was researching Charlotte because I read it in one of my political comms classes in college, and it's... Yeah, difficult but, to find. But it. yeah, I mean, so, but, but the point quickly is just that there's also a culture in this country. I think there's a culture of being entertained rather than activism. So you've got all those things working against us. Um, I have a quick thing to add, too, about the why do we want daddy? I, you know, I interviewed so many um, people who are running campaigns, male and female, right and left, when I was writing Charlotte. And I've been a political journalist um, like a couple lives ago. And... With so many women running for office, one of the things that they're all talking about behind the cam behind the scenes is how do we convince them that the daddy thing is a myth, that it's never been your daddy taking care of you or out there protecting you? How can we make them actually tap into that, that I we actually want mommy, we actually want a mother, we want someone who's going to be the one kissing our boo-boos and making it better because it has been the women that have been caring for society for so long. So how is that daddy myth kind of flipped on its head? And that's, that's a cultural issue. Yeah. That's, that's something that has been ingrained for the past 2,000 years. But it's something that I know every single one of the women presidential campaigns is thinking about right now. Right. Well, women running for office are often particularly um, 
questioned or analyzed or doubted in times of war and um, kind of military threat. Uh, certainly right after 9-11, it became far more difficult to run as a woman. Um, and I think, who is it who was saying recently, the, um, the kind of recent economic trends in maybe the last 30, 40, 50 years have meant that the role of men in the family uh, can no longer be the sole provider, right? And that instead uh, has shifted to become more and more focused on protector, mm -hmm. right? So that if we are finding uh, the role of protector to be at the essence of masculinity in this country, uh, protector of the country, right? That, that might be kind of a reason we're seeing such a preference for strongman leaders. That's as best I can do as a political scientist on that <laughs> question. And we had a couple questions on this side. Uh, yeah, okay, you're next. Uh, yeah, so I I'm, I'm want to revisit your comment about um, having faith in our institutions, our institutions are, are working. And what I'm wondering... Ish. Ish, yeah. right? So you see this currently in terms of what, what I'm seeing, at least, in the media, is um, a sense to cover both sides equally, right? And this false equivalence... That oh, is drawn, and we're that's and we're, will. That's will, right? <laughs> uh, and, and so, I'm wondering if we think about the strong man, right? This 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 problem. Are we even are we hardwired in the same way millennials, right, have no concept of privacy? It seems like the media and even ourselves are hardwired to think things equally, right? There is no equivalence to some of the things currently going on, and you even see it right now with the impeachment, right? Uh, Kamala Harris was asked yesterday uh, about uh, if she thought Biden was being uh, defend, defending himself enough, right? And she responded, that's what Trump wants us to be thinking about. Mm -hmm. right. And so you see this a lot. And so I, I just be very curious about, are, is there a flaw? In the same way there's millennials in, in this capitocracy, is there a flaw in, in our institutions, right? And the way we think about uh, autocracy. Yeah, I, I, I'll just say real quick, since you talked all about the media, I, I mean, I think, I think the media's response to Trump has been very inadequate. And uh, in fact, I, I, uh, I gave a talk on this at Drexel earlier this year, and you can find it, if you go to my Twitter feed, it's my pinned tweet, is a, a link to my talk on journalism in the age of Trump. But just real quickly, I mean, I, the challenge for Trump, I mean, the challenge for uh, uh, the media in the Trump era is, um, you know, how do we keep the basic values of fairness, fact, based, but yet at the same time convey the fact that democracy is under attack, you know, and, and convey that sense of urgency with that while keeping the core values. I, I had a, um, I, I played football in high school, believe it or not, and it's pretty unbelievable, but um, I, um, my, my coach uh, taught me how to play defensive end, and the way you did it, he said, is you have to rush the passer with reckless abandon under control, which makes no sense, but it, does, but it, did, but it did make sense, you know, and it's the same for journalism. I mean, they have, to, they have to go after the current crisis with reckless abandon but under control, and it's, it's a very hard thing to calibrate, and they're not getting it right, a lot of them, so... The danger right now, um, actually, this goes back to Will also. So <laughs> I think he thought he was just going to be the yeah. moderator here. <laughs> no, I Let knew, that, I knew, that, I knew no, better. But he has no, this no, other no. book here called Backlash, which I think we should package with our two. Mm -hmm. 
because the the greatest danger that I see is that kind of a full-on rush toward impeachment right now would backfire for 2020 for the elections is the fear. The the people who are Trump's base feel under attack. And uh, it seems like rushing with reckless abandon, even if it is controlled, um, it, it worries me. It's a, it's, it's a dilemma. It's absolutely. a dilemma. And I, I want to say, so Will has my dream job. <laughs> Will has the job that I, I, do like that yeah, I, I yeah. wanted when change? I was growing up, <laughs> when no, I graduated from a very good journalism school. And when I started at the New York Daily News newspaper, I thought I was on a path to have a, a job as a journalist for life. And then the internet happened oh, and know. my son's here, but they effed it all up. Um, and I've watched, and, and Will still gets, Will is one of the rare people who still gets to practice what I consider good and real journalism. As I continued in journalism and watched what the internet and digital media was doing, we were pushed more and more to entertain rather than to inform. Um, and that's, again, the what Postman said, you know, that we're, we're just entertaining ourselves to death. And now we have a president who's a reality television star. And so it's giving those outlets exactly what they want. And there's not enough space. There's not enough column inches dedicated to actually effectively covering what's really happening. Well, and this is largely, I just want to add, um, it, it's not, I don't think this is hardwired. I think there's a hunger for real news, actually. Mm -hmm. But when news is a capitalist business, which I think it should never be, Right. Then you get this blending of infotainment. Yeah. I, mean, I don't know how much I'm hoping we can get one or two more questions in. Um, uh, yeah. Somebody's got Someone's the mic. Got so, mic. yeah, there we go. Good. I'll try to be brief. You probably already know me from two years ago. I'm not a brief person. Um, my question is about fear, both in my personal life and also in my writing. Um, fear either keeps you from doing the right thing or doing the wrong thing or doing something else that may not be right or wrong. So I don't know how I, in a personal life or in my stories or in real life, people overcome that because it's very easy to scare people. You shouldn't do that, but you can easily get Trump reelected just by scaring people, and he's really good at that. I mean, I'm, I'm scared myself. So the idea is you can make mistakes, and so I don't know how we overcome that either in fictional work or in real life, but the idea is that it may be intentional manipulation, it may be unintentional, but there may be something within me that I need to bring out to be a braver person, but is there any advice you can give me? It could be that there is no advice or like, well, go see a rabbi. Mm -hmm. That makes sense, but if you have any well, advice, let me know. Well, I, I, I do. I think, yeah, you go. Yeah. Uh, first of all, I promise you, if you're feeling afraid, it's intentional. Somebody's benefiting. Okay, but um, the... The best advice I got on this was from a book about art, actually. It's called Art and Fear, and if you've never read it, it's so brilliant and beautiful. It's about, um, it was a writer and a painter got together to write a book about fear and how it impacts the making of your art, and you can substitute in there, for me, political science or doing my research work or teaching. And they said, the way that you learn your craft or the way that you make your art is by making your art right and the last project teaches you the tools that you need for the next project there's no good kind of uh, there's no good way to learn except by failing and then you learn and you just do the the project and you learn from that and do the next project so that um writer's block or right now <laughs> 
on the left especially, I think our resistance is hampered by kind of, we're all searching for the perfect movement or the, you know, the perfect moment. Um, any kind of resistance we say in our book is useful and you can resist in lots of ways. You can resist through professional norms. So there were um, pilots who refused to carry uh, detainees away or prisoners to Guantanamo by saying that would be a danger to the rest of the passengers on the plane. I, I, I can't fly the plane. You know, so just sitting down, um, uh, the the way to resist um, alienation or kind of people making you afraid of your neighbor is you look your neighbor in the eye and you smile on a daily basis, right? You try and create human connections. So whatever the fear is, engage it directly is the best response we had. Okay, I'm getting I'm getting the one more question signal. So so. Uh, oh. Hi. Um. I want to just talk to you for a minute because I was a teacher for 39 years and I taught kids from Camden for 39 years. And part of what I did was I always registered kids to vote and I always was there, politically speaking, because uh, I taught history. Um, and I have a son who's transgender and um, I'm trying to get him to get into Rutgers because I think they're very nurturing and yeah. really, really great institution. But I was like, my birthday was the Women's March the first Women's March. I mean, I was born to be a resistor. We're, we're born on the same day. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah, that's so cool. Seriously? Okay, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah? yeah. Oh, yeah? Okay, good. Um, but, and I read Will all the time, and I just, um, I'm looking for inspiration all the time. Yeah. Um, but there are times with this false equivalency where I literally had to teach kids about a lesser of two evils because there will never be a perfect candidate. Um, and uh, the last election, I remember following this kid to class because he was saying that she's a liar and he's a maniac and just trying to get him to realize how the difference between a liar and a maniac, <laughs> I mean, that's like huge, right? Uh, and just that whole concept of all politicians lie, all politicians are bad. I mean, I just... I wanted to just see your reaction to that. I don't know if it's a question, but just the idea that um, how do we restore faith that people aren't perfect? Right. Well, the so I have um, sometimes I go and I talk about young people not wanting to get into politics and young people explain to me yet again why they don't want to get into politics and, and say things like, well, we should just burn it down and start over. And, uh, you know, it, it, it's like I can't teach them all about the, the hundreds of years that it took to get the ideas that the framers put into the Declaration and the, the Constitution. Like, democracy is so hard to create and so easy to lose, right? It only takes an election or two to lose a democracy, but it takes hundreds of years to get a good one going. Uh, so, you know, the burn it down mentality, I understand they're upset. Yeah, but it reminds me of my old boss at now uh, was from Louisiana and David Duke was running, was it 96, right? David Duke was a grand wizard of the KKK. Okay, he's running for the Senate. And the guy who the Democrats put up against him uh, was like indicted for embezzlement. So they had bumper stickers that read, vote for the crook. It's important. <laughs> so the best I can do for my students, <laughs> the best I can say is, I got it. It's not perfect. All of your critiques are correct. The system is rigged. 
It is really against you. Yeah. But are you going to build a new system by yourself? No. So the best thing you can do is get in and help change it. We've got like three options we talk about in the book. It's from Hirschman, um, like a 1960 book. You can, uh, he calls it voice, loyalty, or exit, right? Exit is you leave, right? Loyalty is you sit down and shut up. And voice is you speak up. And of those, only voice will kind of um, work in the long run. So, you know, that's our recommendation in, you know, after going through all these terrible governments is voice where possible, right? We, we say if you will get killed for speaking up, don't speak up. You've got to be alive for the long-term resistance. Uh, sometimes your resistance has to be like, foot dragging or professional norms or individual level or just kind of smiling at a neighbor. Like sometimes it has to be low level, but God damn it, we still have rights in this country. Let's use it, right? You can still speak up. I can say uh, <laughs> he's a snake oil salesman and we fell for it, but let's not do so again. All right. Well, I'm, I see a giant hook coming from over <laughs> the side. So, uh, um, um, you guys have been great. Uh, you've been a really fantastic audience. You probably should applaud yourselves, but you should definitely applaud Joe and Shauna. And <clears throat> two, two, two things I want to tell you real quick before you leave. Uh, uh, I don't know if Sam has more, but I want to tell you, go to the Barnes & Noble, I believe it is, and you can buy either one of their books. You should buy you should buy both their books. Uh, I'm, I'm not with the Barnes & Noble, but I lugged way too many copies of my own books here, so I can I can stay around a little bit afterwards if you want to um, um, talk to me and buy a signed copy for me here. I can I can deal with that uh, if you have cash, unfortunately, but um, <laughs> no, which nobody does because of companies like Humanity, right? So nobody is. Um, but um, but that's it. So thank you all for coming and give these guys a big big round of applause. Thank you, Ron. Thank you. Thanks again for listening to Politics on the Page from the Collingswood Book Festival. If you have feedback or want to contact me, you can look up Joe Samuel Starnes on Twitter or Facebook and send me a note. You also can go to our website, writerslatitude.com, and find that information there. It would be great to hear from you and uh, your thoughts on the podcast.